Looking at verse 16, we'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 1 this morning. If you have young children in the service with you this morning, I'm going to apologize in advance. You're going to probably, when you go home, have to answer some questions that are not difficult to understand the answer to, but are difficult to phrase and explain uh, to younger minds. And I sort of apologize for that in advance. Some of what Paul writes about in this passage is graphic, and we'd be remiss not to address it directly given our cultural context, but try to be as veiled as possible without hiding the meaning. In any case, from God's Word this morning, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. This is God's Word. I am not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters. They are insolent. They are arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they don't only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Congregation and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus became man, when Jesus came to earth, when He was walking around, right there, right there in the flesh, was on display the righteousness from God. The righteousness from God was revealed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life and His death was the gospel. He lived a perfect life for God's chosen people. He died for their sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He broke the creation out of its old, sin-tainted, unglorified state and brought it into the beginnings of its glorified existence. We needed Christ 
to be revealed. Because we could not stand in God's judgment without His obedience, death, and power to recreate the universe. But we saw last week that it wasn't only Christ and His righteousness that was revealed in that Gospel event. There was also a dark, ugly side to Christ's coming also. Jesus suffered His whole life, but especially on the cross. And in Him, God was revealing His fierce anger, His wrath against sin. God revealed His wrath in the Gospel. God revealed His burning, righteous anger against sinners. That's what was revealed in His terrifying act of judging Christ in our place on the cross. And you have got to face the wrath of God. You have got to face the wrath of God because you cannot be part of the glorious new creation. You cannot be the recipient of Christ's perfect obedience credited to you. You cannot say that the blood of Christ washed away your sins unless, unless you understand and acknowledge your place in the cursed, fallen creation in which God revealed His wrath. This morning we're going to look a little more closely at why God is so terribly angry, so full of wrath, which He revealed in the life and the death of Christ. Look at verse 18 to be reminded. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against what? All the godlessness and wickedness of men. That uh, second word translated wickedness in the NIV should uh, better be uh, translated unrighteousness to contrast the unrighteousness of the fallen human race with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who came from heaven. It's obvious that uh, God looks at the human race. He's so uh, angry and justly so because of their sin because it's an unrighteous humanity, right? But then Paul goes on to describe in further detail the characteristics of the unrighteous human race from the end of verse 18 all the way through the end of this chapter. So we see that mankind is unrighteous, but Paul goes on to further explain what that means that mankind is unrighteous through the end of this chapter. And this is important for you because you have to acknowledge, you must acknowledge your place in this description that follows of the unrighteousness of mankind. Otherwise, you'll be locked out of the new creation. If you don't identify your place in this chapter, you have nothing to do with Christ. Don't fool yourself. How does he explain it? Well, you see the root of their problem at the end of verse 18. How does Paul, by the Holy Spirit, describe the unrighteousness of mankind. Look at the end of verse 18. The root of their problem is that they what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. They suppress the truth. We saw this last time too. What does that mean that they suppress the truth? Well, they reject the true God. The God who is obviously the one only true God. The God who clearly testifies in His own creation that He alone exists as God. They face that one true God in their heart they even breathe the air that He gives to them every day, every second of every day, and yet they deny Him. Verse 21, They know God, but they neither glorify Him as God, nor do they give thanks to Him. Verse 23, They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images 
made to look like creatures, and that's what's clarified in verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve created things, whether it be themselves or another false god, something that they came up with, or another creature. They worship created things instead of worshiping the blessed Creator who is forever praised. The root problem with the unrighteous human race is that they are idolatrous. They suppress the truth. But you see, what's new this morning about Paul's description, or what's new for us to uh, look at this morning, is that God reacts to this root heart idolatry of the unrighteous human race. The problem that mankind has in being idolatrous to the core is compounded by God's reaction to that idolatry. Look at God's reaction to the idolatry of the human race. And Paul shouts it out with a refrain three times. First of all, verse 24. Therefore, that is, because mankind at its root is idolatrous, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over, says Paul. God looks at the human race which at its root is idolatrous and forsakes Him even though He's obvious to them. And how does He react? He reacts by giving them over. That is to say, He reacts by withholding His restraints which would otherwise have kept the idolatrous and rebellious human race from getting worse and worse. It's as if God responds to the idolater and says, fine, you want to reject me? Have it your way. Man at his core is so rebellious and idolatrous that he would plunge himself only deeper and deeper and deeper into destruction. The only thing that would hold him back is if God is restraining him. But God looks at that heart of idolatry and he reacts to it by saying, fine, and giving them over, giving them over, giving them over to all kinds of immorality. To give them over to what their idolatrous hearts really desire. And indeed, they do then plunge themselves deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion and eventually destruction. So God reacts to their idolatry by giving them over to that which their hearts really desire. And the uh, next question that the text leads us to ask is, what is it exactly that the human race is given over to? What is it exactly that the human race is given over to? You see that first in verse 24. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what? Sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. The men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. They committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So how does Paul begin to answer the question, what exactly has God given over the idolatrous human race to do? How's that for a gentle beginning to that answer? And it is very graphic, isn't it? It's very explicit. And it's important for us to think about why Paul would raise the issue of homosexuality first on his list of things that God gave 
idolatrous mankind over to do. It's important to ask why Paul would choose that first, and second of all, why he would speak so graphically at that. Well, Paul talks about homosexuality first because homosexual activity is one of the most obvious examples of mankind suppressing the natural order which God has put in place. Paul talks about homosexuality first because it's one of the most obvious examples of how mankind suppresses the obvious truth, the obvious testimony of nature which God has established in His world for their own desires. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, it's clear that Paul views homosexual activity as sinful. Let's consider the background a little bit of uh, how Paul would understand homosexuality. Of course, Paul was an expert right, in Judaism, an expert in the Old Testament, surpassed many scholars of his day. He was raised a Jew, so he would have believed passages like Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. That is an abomination to the Lord. Or Leviticus 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So very clearly, the Old Testament Scripture had uh, spoken against homosexual activity. In fact, it was uh, such a severe violation of God's character and was to be so far away from the people of God that if those in that Old Testament kingdom were caught doing it, the death penalty was imposed on them in that administration. So it's clearly in Paul's mind in the background that homosexual activity was forbidden by God. But it's also interesting and important for us as contemporary readers to think about what other writers around the time that Paul lived were saying about homosexuality. It's apparent, and you'll see this by some of the language that Paul uses in these verses. Paul has in his mind some of the writings which were going around at the time addressing the issue of homosexual activity. I mean, you know what that's like because, of course, today in the newspapers and in the legislature, on the news, there's always something uh, being reported about this homosexual activity or this law promoting it or defending it or speaking against it or these people picketing or those people picketing on either side of the question of homosexual activity. And Paul was no different. He was uh, conversant in these discussions of his own time and they had an influence on what he said, or I should rather say, Those conversations better help us to understand Paul's meaning and what Paul really believes about homosexuality in these words. I'll give you some examples. Paul died himself, just before you have a time reference, Paul died himself in about 68 AD. So he lived in the first century. I'll give you some examples of some writings that were popular about that time that likely Paul was familiar with and if he hadn't read them himself, he would have been certainly in the conversation about the appropriateness or the lack of appropriateness of a homosexual activity. Plato, who was born in 427 B.C., so 500 years or so before Paul wrote in his laws of these words. Paul would have been familiar with this. When male unites with female for procreation, the pleasure experience is held to be in accordance with nature. But, says Plato, when a male unites with a male... It is contrary to nature. There was a first century Stoic philosopher, Musonius Rufus, who wrote this, But of all sexual relations, those involving adultery are most unlawful, and no more tolerable are those involving males with males, because the daring and flagrant act is contrary to nature. Now you've heard that phrase twice already. Contrary to nature. 
in uh, Plutarch's Dialogue on Love, which was written in the first century, about Paul's time, he quotes a different writing of Plato. And he says, The union with males, either unwillingly with force or plunder, or willingly with softness and effeminacy, surrendering themselves, as Plato says, there's a very graphic description of homosexual activity that follows there. And he says, That is contrary to nature. This is an entirely ill-favored favor, shameful and contrary to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Over and over we hear this expression. Now this is not by Jews, but this is by Greeks and Romans using a saying about homosexuality in Paul's time that it is contrary to nature. Now keep in mind, in most cases these are people who do not believe in the Word of God. They don't believe in the Scripture. They don't believe in the true God of Israel. And yet they have determined as moral philosophers and ethicists that homosexuality is evil. And there are, of course, at or and around the same time as Paul, some Jews who are writing about this issue. There's the letter of uh, Aristeus. We have it about 150 B.C. If it's preserved for us, it's possible that Paul had read it or certainly uh, probable that Paul was in a contact with these kinds of views. And this Jewish man says, Jews are morally superior to the Gentiles because the Gentiles, quote, not only draw near to males, meaning homosexual activity, but also defile their mothers and even their daughters. But we Jews are quite separated from all of these practices. In other words, this is what the Jews thought of homosexuality in Paul's day. The sentences of pseudo Phocleides, 25 A.D., urges that, quote, the limits of sexual intercourse set by nature not be transgressed by intercourse between males. Nor should females imitate the sexual role of men. Josephus, born in 37 A.D., was a Jewish priest, a general and an historian. He was born in Jerusalem. He lived there for about the first 30 years of his life. Then he went to Rome. And he writes of, quote, sexual intercourse with males which is contrary to nature. There's that phrase again, contrary to nature. And without restraint, accusing Greeks who attributed homosexuality to the gods of inventing an excuse for their pleasures which were disgusting and, again, contrary to nature. Contrary to nature. So you see, there were two basic reasons while the contempor- why the contemporaries of Paul, both Jews and the Greeks and Romans, thought that homosexuality was wrong, homosexual activity. It was, first of all, because homosexual intercourse cannot lead to procreation. What they're saying is this. Listen, people, get a clue. The fact that no other sexual activity except that which comes between a man and a woman can result in new life is clear and convincing proof that God's exclusive design in nature is for heterosexual relations. And the other reason that Paul's contemporaries gave, or one of the other reasons, the other main reason, that they gave to reject this homosexual activity is simply because, and pardon me for the the bluntness of this, but it's obvious, the parts don't fit So therefore, to have relations with a man and a man amounted to treating him as if he were not a man and was a woman. And in effect, the willingly homosexual 
partners take up a complaint against God that uh, God has not made them right. And that phrase, which you heard repeatedly in these writings, contrary to nature, stood or represented those thoughts, those two arguments, that you know new life only comes from relations between a man and a woman, so get a hint. Man and man should not be together. And what? The parts don't fit. So get a hint. Man and man should not be together. Those arguments were carried in this phrase, contrary to nature. And when you look in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, this is exactly the phrase that Paul uses to give as his argument, to identify himself with these arguments, to show that homosexual activity is evil and against the will of God. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for, and it's translated in the NIV, unnatural ones, which is a very big shame because it, is, it should read, for those which are contrary to nature. So you see, Paul is thinking about the discussion that's going around him in the culture. 500 years before him, maybe longer, and possibly a few hundred years after him, or obviously a few hundred years after him, as he picks up on those words. And he is thinking about uh, how the culture in its various forms was rejecting homosexual activity and he takes up their arguments to express the will of God. So our conclusion here, again, is that it's very clear that Paul views homosexual activity as sinful. There's no way around that. Now we have to point this out because there are even people today who profess to be Christians and followers of the Bible, but they say things like, monogamous homosexual activity among committed partners is a legitimate God-glorifying expression of sexuality. Monogamous homosexual activity among committed partners is a legitimate God-glorifying expression of sexuality. My hope for you is that you don't get too upset about uh, the world. You know, the broader culture, when you hear things about uh, homosexual activity being promoted or defended or it uh, being tried to uh, made look normal, uh, that shouldn't surprise you. If that surprises you, then it might be time to mature a little bit. Uh, the world hates God, idolatrous at its root, and it should not surprise us that people who don't profess to believe in the true God are going to be very uh, open and explicit about their, their own view of homosexual activity. But it is interesting that there are those who profess to be Christians and who profess to follow the Bible who say, yeah, we believe the verses you just read, but they don't forbid homosexual activity. Now, I want to, for the sake of time, I can only give you one, but I want to address one of their main arguments uh, against the Orthodox Christian Church and their view of saying that homosexual activity is evil. Because they'll say, look, we read these same verses and we believe them, but they are not forbidding homosexual activity. Now, of course, we say it's so obvious. I mean, do we even have to deal with it? Uh, but yeah, we do. Because at least there are people in the world who are saying, well, I could maybe be the kind of Christian that allows people to kind of do what they want, but, you know, your church, whoa. 
you guys are those radical, hate mongers, bigots, intolerant people. We always defend ourselves by saying, well, you know, we're not any better than you. This is what the Bible says. Immediately when you say this is what the Bible says, you may hear back, oh, but I know Christians. I know the church down the street. In fact, the majority of the mainline churches today who say that they believe the Bible and these verses, but that it doesn't say that. How do we respond? Well, let me give you one of their arguments, okay, about these verses that uh, are written. They say this, when Paul and his contemporaries, the ones we read, were writing the words, calling this kind of activity contrary to nature, they did not have in mind homosexual activity in general, but they had the practice of what we call pedestry in mind, meaning relations between a grown man who was exploiting an adolescent boy. So when you read these words that are forbidding what you say is a homosexual activity, what's in the author's minds is not the kind of thing that we're talking about. You know, a monogamous, committed partner relationship. They're talking about grown men taking advantage of and exploiting adolescent boys. What do we say to that? Is that all that's being said here? Well, first of all, we've got to admit, all right, we're not scared to do this, that uh, primarily in the minds of those who were writing letters in the, uh, about this issue, some of which we, we quoted uh, parts from them, uh, in those times, the contemporaries of Paul, uh, they were primarily concerned with this practice of pedestry. So we'll admit that uh, first of all, although it's probably not uh, true of Paul, as we'll see in a minute. But that doesn't show that Paul doesn't have clearly in mind homosexuality in general. Why not? And first of all, think about Paul's background. Remember we raised uh, the issue of what Leviticus said. What does Leviticus say? It says that uh, if you are caught in homosexual activity, then what will happen to you? Uh, under the old covenant system, you shall surely be put to death. Your blood will be shed. Well, if in the biblical author's minds, they're only thinking of a man exploiting an adolescent boy in this way. Why would both of the parties be put to death? If in the Scripture, when it talks about a man having relations with another man, if what that's speaking of is only a boy being taken advantage of by a man, why would both parties be put to death? That would be out of accord with the justice of God. We see in His law that when he commands death for someone, it is because they are responsible. And God always makes a clear distinction between the one who has perpetrated the act and the one who is a victim. And the victim is protected. So obviously, it's speaking of, of, a, of a situation where both parties are guilty. That's in the background of, of Paul's mind from Leviticus. But let me show you another argument. This is a little more history than maybe you wanted to know. The predominant form of homosexual activity in Greco-Roman culture by women was of same age or near the same age mutually consenting females. Among men, 
the primary problem was adult men exploiting boys. But among women, homosexual activity predominantly was women of a same or similar age mutually consenting. Why do I bring that up? In Romans 1.26, look at the parallel that Paul makes between women's actions and men's actions. Chapter 1, verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. And then verse 27. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. In the same way. So if it can be admitted that the predominant issue of women's homosexual activity is the same age and mutually consenting, and Paul condemns that, he then says, in the same way men have gone forth in homosexual activity. So you see there that it's the same kind. It's not men exploiting boys, although Paul certainly would condemn that. One more thing, you may have noticed in verse uh, 27, the contrast that Paul gives is not between, say, men exploiting boys and it's okay for men to be with consenting men, but the contrast is that what? In the same way the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. In other words, the pattern is clearly man with man or man with woman, and that is abandoned by those who have rejected God in their hearts and He has given them over now to pour out their own disobedience. The contrast is between man with woman, which is the ideal, and then they have left that for man with man, generally. So it's very clear that Paul views homosexual activity as sinful. And we belabored this uh, probably because this is the, the passage in the Scripture where this issue is addressed uh, most directly, most uh, poignantly. And so it's the actual uh, recipient of the most attacks by those who are trying to justify their own wickedness. Uh, they have to answer this passage, but they can't because it's clear. Paul talks about homosexuality first because homosexual activity is one of the most obvious examples of suppressing the natural order which God has established in His world. Compare that kind of activity to idolatry. What does idolatry do? Idolatry takes the obvious God who has clearly manifest Himself and it suppresses that truth and replaces it with something else. And that's exactly the same thing with homosexual activity. It's obvious in nature. And yet that is actively suppressed and exchanged for the filling up of sin and rebellion. This is what Paul means, by the, end of, uh, by the way, at the end of verse 27. Listen, this passage can often be misread, so look at that. Verse 27. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, sometimes as uh, 20th, 21st century now, uh, Bible readers, we say, oh, well, that's talking about AIDS. Um, you know, men with men commit homosexual activity and therefore what they receive in themselves or what is the due penalty for their perversion is the, the disease of AIDS. Okay, that's not what Paul's saying here. 
what Paul is saying is that being turned over to the homosexual activity is the penalty for them being idolatrous in the first place. God gave them over. God gave them over. The penalty for their heart idolatry is that God loosened the chains, loosened His kind restraints and let them go forward. That's the penalty for their heart idolatry. That's what they deserve. So from one perspective, homosexual, homosexual activity is a sinful act. But from another perspective, it's God mocking the people involved in it. Mocking them for acting so foolishly and contrary to nature. Giving them over to the desires that are inherently against nature and, and self-degrading and destructive to themselves and to the society. She says, Paul... This is what humanity has become. Foolish, contrary to nature, thinking, saying, and doing things which are rebellious and self-degrading and self-destructive. Now, we said uh, earlier that you cannot be a part. You cannot be a part of the glorious new creation. You cannot be a recipient of the perfect obedience of Christ credited to you. You cannot say that Christ's blood has been shed for your sins unless you understand and acknowledge your place in the cursed, fallen creation in which God reveals His wrath. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I have a, a very deep concern for you. I have a deep concern that perhaps you just sat through Paul's explanation of homosexuality and now you're saying to yourself, well, thank God I'm not like the dirty homosexuals. You know, because God will accept me because I'm not homosexual. And He knows I would never condone that kind of filth. You see, there's a danger when you acknowledge that homosexual behavior is sinful. There's a danger in that. It's, you have to do it but there's a danger that goes along with it. The danger is that you disassociate yourself. You don't see yourself as being, by nature, as idolatrous as someone who practices homosexuality. I am not like the dirty homosexual. You're like the Pharisee in Luke 18.11 who stands up and prays about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Fill it in right here. Homosexuals. Or even like this tax collector. The danger is, when you rightly acknowledge from the Word of God and when you speak boldly from the Word of God that homosexual behavior is sinful, the danger is that you disassociate yourself. You don't see yourself as being, by nature, as idolatrous as someone who practices homosexuality. In fact, what? Because the only reason... Why, if you do not practice homosexual activity, the only reason that is, is because God has not specifically uh, withheld His restraint from you. Because by nature, you are the same. You are the same unrighteous man, or woman, or child, as those who pour forth their filth in that way today. You know, the proof of this is 
in verses 28 and following, because God also gave over mankind to other things which ought not to be done. And if you read this list and you open your life before God and your heart before God, you find yourself as one of these people. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil. I'll just highlight uh, some of the ones that hopefully you can see more clearly. Greed. What about greed? Are you a greedy person? Yes. Greed and depravity, they're full of envy. Are you jealous? Envy, dissatisfied with providence. Murder. And what did Jesus say about murder? Not just physically killing somebody, but hating somebody in your heart. Strife, causing uh, dissension and anger. Deceit, lying. Malice, ill intent. They're gossips. Do you gossip? Then you're on this list. You're on the same list as the homosexual. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, pride, 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 pride. Boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Children, do you disobey your parents? It's on the list. Senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, don't you see yourself there? By nature, don't you see yourself on that list? Yes, as a child of God who has been saved by His grace, you have been made alive in Christ. And so now you're not dead in your sins like you were before. But look, the old habits that you have, the sins that you still commit, testify that you by nature are on this list. I by nature am on this list. Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we cannot judge that homosexual activity is evil? No, it does not mean that. We have to say that. That's what God's Word says. What it means is that if your attitude is that because I don't commit some particular kind of, of sin and therefore God will accept me or how it looks today mostly is people will say, well, yeah, I believe I make some mistakes or I do a few things wrong, but I'm not a sinner like those people I see out there in the world. So God will accept me because, you know, obviously He won't accept them, He'll accept me, you know. If that, that's what judging is in Romans 2 verse 1. You may not do that. You have no excuse because you who pass judgment on someone else, in other words, if you say, oh, that dirty uh, homosexual community... Uh, they're going to be judged by God for that, which, by the way, is true. Paul will explain that later. If you say they will be judged, they will not be with God in eternity because they are like that, but me, see, I'm not like that, and so I will be with God, then you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment on them, the heart idolaters, do the same things flowing out of your own heart of idolatry, though you may not share in their particular manifestation of it. You see, you cannot participate in the glorious new creation. You cannot be the recipient of Christ's perfect obedience. You cannot say that the blood of Christ was shed for your sins unless you understand and acknowledge your place in the cursed fallen creation in which God revealed His wrath. So to turn the phrase, yes, this morning, you have to come out of the closet and say, this is who you are by nature. Your different in one sense 
maybe, than a militant homosexual. But in another sense, you are no different at all. And in fact, the only reason you're different is because God has not given you over to your innermost idolatrous desires. If you're a believer, of course, He's done more than that. He's made you alive in Christ. So, I mean, I hope you're convicted of your sins. I mean, the biggest problem in conservative churches today is, is self-righteousness. Wanting to speak out so forcefully against the sins of the human race, but being completely blind to the fact that they by nature are the same. The great thing is that if you put yourself there, you see that Christ is the one who obeyed the law perfectly for you. And you flee to His life, which you need to be credited to you. Not your own you know, small and stupid levels of obedience which never get us anywhere. And you know that as a Christian. You don't even keep your own vows and obey your own laws that you set up. We don't, do we? We fail, we fail, we fail. But it's great to see that and acknowledge our place here because then we see that we have Christ who lived perfectly for us and who died to pay the penalty that we deserve and actually we daily increase our guilt, but He paid for all of that. We'll close by asking about this homosexual thing. Uh, what kind of church are we going to be given our societies today? You know, increasingly, it, it's probably true that people who will hear about us will think that we're crazy. But uh, the first thing we have to stand firm is we have to continue to speak out against the sin of homosexual activity. We have to call a spade a spade. And I hope that God will give us grace to stand firm in that no matter what happens. I mean, I don't care, frankly, if we get accused of if we get dragged before the magistrates uh, for hate crimes because we speak out that homosexual activity is wrong, we're going to do it. And we're going to remain true to God's Word in spite of pressure to do otherwise. That's the first thing I would hope for us. But the second thing I would hope for us, which is equally as important, is that when we do this, and when we come into contact with our opponents, and especially when we come into contact with those who are engaging in homosexual activity, that there would be an air of love that we would show to lost sinners and that we would have the humility to recognize that by nature we are the same people. I mean, I really wonder what would happen if, I'm sure as many of you do, have maybe know somebody who is homosexual, what happens if you invite an, an unbelieving person who engages in homosexual activity to the church and say they bring their partner through the doors? What would you do? I mean, are we going to see a space around those people in the benches with a spotlight? You see, we've got to watch it. We have to love lost sinners as Christ loved us in speaking out strongly against homosexual activity. We are speaking out strongly against ourselves by nature. And ought to be with love and welcoming, not approving of the activity. Again, preaching strongly against it and calling to repentance. But with love and welcoming of those whom God will bring us that He may work salvation in them as He has in us. That's what I hope for us. And we thank God for His grace uh, for delivering us from our own sins through the life and the blood of Christ.
to that, all God's people said, Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for uh, Your Word which is true. And it so far surpasses uh, the logic of the natural, our own natural logic. For where You speak so strongly against uh, sin, You also speak uh, so gently and loving to sinners. We pray that we would always have the divine, godly, holy balance of the truth and uh, the love uh, with which we express that truth. Help us to uh, even love our enemies in the culture. Help us to pray for the lost, uh, not only to speak out against uh, their agendas. And in all these things, uh, would we look to Christ, the captain of our salvation, whose name we pray. Amen.